Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's nice to be on the same side of the Pacific Ocean as you. Yes, uh, as we noted last last episode, we were we might miss last week because you would be traveling, and indeed we missed it. And it sounds like indeed you traveled. It never ceases to blow my mind when you get on a plane and you get off. Fourteen hours later, you're on this big metal box, and fourteen hours later, you get off that big metal box, and everything has changed. It's uh, just one of those things, and it's very nice to be back in Australia this time of year. I, you know, I feel like your accent has actually changed. Uh, but I might be a placebo effect. I might be imagining it. No, it's. I, I think you're probably right. I remember this time last year, I, I came back and I was swimming at a local pool, and a, a lady and I in my lane started speaking, and she's started asking me about. Uh, whether I was visiting from America, and I think she saw the disappointed look on my face as the realization dawned that I'd begun to lose my accent. And she's like, oh, so you're from Canada then? And that only made it worse. <laughs> you know, I think you told that story last time, but you didn't put oh, really? the Canada part, so it was totally yeah. worth repeating it. So I'm, I'm, okay, glad, I'm glad you... But it sounds like you're making you're making a plan this time to to enter full-on accent mode. Uh, I right. guess, I, although I guess it's the opposite. When you're there, it's normal. In, in the U.S., it's the accent. But whatever. Right. For, I, I'm an American, and as we know, that we're the center of the universe for everything. So uh, I see you re-entered full-on accent mode this uh, is in true. response. I feel like we're turning into these old university professors just retelling the same old stories. I hope it's not too bad for our listeners. Oh, I, I do it all the time. I do all, I, I, I'm do i well aware, so I apologize for that. Yes. Uh, this will, uh, just real quickly, this will be our last episode of the year. Christmas is coming up, so Merry Christmas to our listeners and Happy New Year's. And we will be back in January, uh, January 12th, I believe, would be our next episode. But just wanted to get that out there. That way we can avoid the uh, where are you guys at, where I know that you didn't actually listen to the end of the episode because that's where we usually announce it but we'll be back we'll be back then yeah uh have a great break everybody though i suspect we might wish that to you again at the end of the episode too that's true speaking of repeating ourselves Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking of repeating ourselves uh Mm -hmm. repeat sponsor our our exclusive sponsor of exponent is wordpress.com whether you'd like to build a personal blog a business site or both creating your website on wordpress.com helps others find you remember you and connect with you you don't need experience they guide you through the process from start to finish and take care of the technical side to get your site up and running their customer support team is made up of wordpress experts eager to help you get the most from your site and they're available to help 24 hours a day monday to friday and on weekends plans start at just four dollars a month and all plans include a custom domain name for the life of the plan go to wordpress.com slash exponent to get 15 percent off your website today that's wordpress.com slash exponent our thanks to wordpress.com for sponsoring exponent yes and on the subject of repeating yourself i was trying not to laugh after you butchered that read three times and had to do it three times but uh, that's going to be edited out for the record but (laughs) i I thought you were going to steal my segue which is speaking of repeating ourselves Mm -hmm. we we had a podcast about disney uh, mm. Not that long ago, I think it was uh, late August when we came back from summer break, and it it, it has been fascinating. It, what what has happened with Disney over the last six to nine months has been absolutely fascinating. So I'm going to do like just a real quick overview uh, of sort of put context around this deal that we're talking about today, which is Disney's announced acquisition uh, of most of the assets of 21st Century Fox from your favorite person in the world, Mister 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 Australian uh, Rupert mm-hmm. Murdoch. Yes. So there's a there's a definite Australian theme. Well, there's not just an Australian theme, but but a theme of kind of America taking over Australia. Which oh, wow. so <laughs> I'm just not going to comment. Do you, do you need a few moments to recover? Oh uh, no, I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dignify that. 
<laughs> so a few years ago, so Disney's big money. Disney think about you think about Mickey Mouse and with the theme parks. You think about the movies, but for a long time, Disney's biggest moneymaker by far was ESPN, the sports network, and and by extension, sort of their media networks portfolio. And in this world where you know cable was the dominant form of entertainment in people's homes. The you know that there was a lot of profit to be extracted there. Just by definition, if there's kind of one place to get entertainment, you're going to be able to charge a lot for that. But what was interesting about that, just because a lot of money could be charged, it didn't follow that the the one doing the charging was going to capture all the profits. So what I mean is, if you lived in a house, you got your cable from Comcast, uh, everyone's you know f- favorite company, then. Yes, you would pay a lot of money to Comcast, and you know I've argued in the past that there was consumer benefits to this. That bundles are, you know, they are beneficial economically, both for consumers and for suppliers. We're not going to get into in, in this. We've talked about it previously, but the point is, you were still paying a lot of money for this this sort of package of of entertainment. And the question though is, it doesn't mean Comcast was capturing all that money. Like just because you're paying a hundred dollars a month or whatever it might be, doesn't mean Comcast is pocketing a hundred dollars a month because they have to pay the suppliers, who are the people who actually make make the TV content. And the sort of the core sort of negotiation, as it were, in media was this trade-off between the suppliers and the distributors and who would sort of pocket pocket the most. And by and large, it was the the media networks, the suppliers that that pocketed the vast majority of that money. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to watch two two big entities uh, go up against each other and you have I mean in in uh, depending on how you look at it these are mono- monopolies fighting against each other right like there's uh, a monopoly at least in some instances in terms of the connection into people's houses and then there's a monopoly in terms of like the content that people watch and then these two guys would end up juking it or two entities would end up juking it out and sometimes you would end up in a situation where they wouldn't be able to reach an agreement and things got pulled but invariably at least in the past and this might have started to change as the internet became more important invariably the reason people had cable was because they had certain things that they really wanted to watch and the cable providers knew that and if they lost those things that people wanted to watch people would just get mad like it defeats the whole purpose of having it right well it's interesting i'm not is the word monopoly the right word here because Mm. on the one side yes like comcast would have the the monopoly like there that was really the way to get it i mean you direct tv and satellite tv was kind of the the one alternative that there was and then increasingly particularly in the last few years there was really an alternative particularly in major metropolitan areas from from phone companies usually mm. over over files but by and large if you want to use sort of a, a traditional definition of monopoly that's where the monopoly was mm-hmm. but that's why this interaction is so interesting because what monopoly did say disney and espn have well on one hand there was lots of channels to watch like people complain i get all these channels i don't only watch five of them why do i pay for all of them right and we again we're not going to have the bundle economics discussion other than mm. to say you know there is actually significant consumer benefit that comes from bundles in a sort of win-win way but by and large, what what was the monopoly? Well, the monopoly was ESPN had the rights to mm. a, a sports game you wanted to watch, for example, or the Disney Channel had had Mickey Mouse on it. Right. And is that you know is it a monopoly? Well, yes, it's a monopoly. But at the end of the day, all successful businesses, if, if that's your definition, mm. like all successful businesses are monopolies, right? I've used this characterization in terms of Apple. Like yes. Apple doesn't have a monopoly on phones. But they do have a monopoly on iPhones, yes. and legally, is that a problem? No, it's not. Frankly, is it a problem in terms of 
I, I only want a device that charges iOS. Well, that's why they can charge $1,000 for it. I mean, it's such a neat articulation of why businesses strive for differentiation because whether it's differentiated content or a differentiated experience in terms of using a phone, once you differentiate far enough, consumers will start to accept no substitute and you have effectively created something akin to a monopoly inside of consumers' minds, though you're right to push back on the use of the word, but because from a economic and legal perspective, it's not really a monopoly. They don't really have a monopoly on entertainment or a monopoly on operating systems. They just have a monopoly on what the consumer wants, which isn't really a monopoly, but it, it, it gets across the idea. Well, it, it does. And, and, you know, kind of like the, the ideal outcome for any business is a quote unquote legal monopoly, as it were, because mm. then you get all the profits of monopoly without all these sort mm-hmm. of like regulatory problems that, mm. that, that, that come on the other side. And, you know, and again, Apple is sort of the canonical example here, but this was the exact sort of thing that Disney was in place, uh, when it came to the cable bundle. And again, what's so interesting about this, and you can put this in the context of other discussions that we've had previously is, in this case, the the more natural monopoly, according to the the like legalistic definition of the term, actually was not the most profitable part of the value chain. The the more profitable part of the value chain was on the supplier side because they had this exclusive content that that they could negotiate these these higher and higher rates. So you know, ESPN today charges something like seven dollars per subscriber. And every subscriber to Comcast or DirecTV or it might be pays that that much, whether they watch ESPN or not. And why can they do that? Because the content is so differentiated that people will will go to the significant hassle of finding a new television provider if they can't watch their game, and that lets them you know charge up the prices. And it, it, but it wasn't just ESPN. Disney basically pioneered this idea of building kind of a bundle within a bundle where if you want ESPN, you also had to get the Disney Channel. You also had to get ABC and you also had to get Disney Channel 2 and ESPN 2 and ESPN 3 and 4 and 5 and wherever they might be. And then they acquired like Maker TV and suddenly that was part of the cable bundle. Why? Because ESPN's payoff wasn't just ESPN's prices. It was you also had to get all this other Disney stuff too along the way. So it, its actual economic impact was was even greater. And it was so powerful that Disney, this huge company that you think about them doing you know, all these other businesses – ESP or the media networks division, not like a decade ago, was driving something like 50% of revenue and like 65% of profits or something like that. Some massive, massive part of the company. They really figured out how to milk this, didn't they? They really did. And it's interesting because, uh, and as this is something that we've talked about time and time again, and is a really interesting lead up to this conversation, because invariably when you are that successful in a paradigm, it's really hard to drag yourself away from that and, and see the world differently. And I mean, basically that's what this podcast is going to be about. Like Disney having to view the world differently because the world is starting to fundamentally change. Well, what's interesting is Disney's done this before this entire sort of massive unbelievably profitable media networks division came about from another acquisition, which was at the time the second largest acquisition ever. And this was in 1995 when Disney acquired Capital Cities, which owned ABC and ESPN and, and a lot of the, these other media networks. And so in this case, 1995 was like ESPN was just starting to like really monetize sort of effectively. And it was it was becoming like this this whole cable being this massive profit generator, it was a little bit of a profit generator. It was still thought that the broadcast networks were what was really valuable. So it's really interesting. You go back and read the coverage of this deal. Everyone's talking about Disney acquiring ABC. 
it actually turns out ABC was not important to this deal at all. What mattered was ESPN and the other and the other pieces of it. In this case, Disney very much saw where the media landscape was shifting to, bought in the crown jewel, and then just profited massively for the next 20 years. You quoted, and it is one of the most, uh, it is a very popular quote inside of um, business, uh, business. I always hate using these quotes that are like, it's like using the Spider-Man quote, like with great power, great responsibility. Yes. But sometimes they're so perfect, you have you have to use them. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. you oh, no, you, you not at all. The, quote. the the Gretzky quote about skating to where the puck is going to be is such the perfect articulation of this. And I, I mean... This is why you want to be thinking about this stuff and building up frameworks and trying to understand where the fundamental assumptions are changing. Because from a business perspective, that's building up the intuition around where the puck's going to be. And it, like that, that description of seeing that, that the broadcast networks were on the way out and the rise of cable and the rise of differentiated cable and how that would result in uh, an extreme amount of pricing control in the cable negotiations was critical. And there's some equivalent of that that's going, that is happening right now in terms of how distribution is shifting and how the power of the cable companies is starting to wane. And that's not necessarily where people are getting their entertainment from and it's starting to shift. So what's so interesting, though, and you kind of hinted at this a moment ago, talking about how companies that are really successful have such a hard time moving forward, is this was actually what happened to Disney. And it was amazing how clueless they seemed to be about the the changes that were coming, where they're, you know, this this massive money stream that they'd uncovered with cable was was maybe in a bit of danger. You go back in back into 2012. Disney signed a deal with Netflix. I think we talked about this uh, in our August podcast, but it's worth sort of reiterating this. Where Bob Iger is all pumped up because they're like, "Oh yeah, they're they're gonna we we feel very good about opportunities. It's more places where we can we can monetize our IP." And this was so old world thinking where old world was only a couple of years ago, but this idea where and we've talked about the context of vertical and horizontal companies previously, but if you're a sort of horizontal company and what's the nature of a horizontal company is that you're spending a huge amount of money up front on these sort of fixed cost assets and then you're leveraging those across the, the widest base of consumers possible. So the classic example that we use in the case of technology is a company like Google or whatever where they're b- spending tons of money on the back end, but then they're literally trying to reach and cover the entire world. Facebook's the same sort of thing. And their sort of motivations are to be everywhere. Like it's it's in Google's interest to have really good apps on the iPhone. Why? What about Android? Well, the problem is is and this is a mistake that Google made that we've discussed previously. If you start featuring Android, it's the tail wagging the dog. You're getting away from the fundamental drivers of your business, which is reaching everyone, advertising to everyone, so on and so forth. In the case of a company like Disney, you create content, which is really expensive and difficult, differentiated content. And then what do you do? You sell it. You you, you put it on TV channels, you, you movies, theaters. You sell it to airplanes, which you, um, you probably watched a few movies flying over the Pacific. You sell it to international distributors. And you basically take this content and you sell it again and again. Why? Because when you, the second time you show a piece of content or the, the the cost is zero like the, mm-hmm. the because you've already made the content so it's pure profit so this is the sort of mindset that drove these media companies and was very core to this decision in 2012 to put their content on Netflix right and the 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 issue being that what they didn't understand and it's kind of reasonable to to think for them to think this way is that Netflix was going to be static they'd moved from selling DVDs to selling streaming rights and they seemed to be or, or selling DVDs to selling streams and people able to access streams of all this content whenever they wanted and it just looks like 
uh, like cable 2.0, like they're just another place in which that you can drop content and like make money and Netflix pays the licensing fees and everybody's happy. And what they didn't appreciate was Netflix hadn't finished climbing up the ladder. They still had a little bit further to go. And the next stop on that was to start creating their own content to think about getting themselves to a position where they are today, where they have a library of content such that they can flick a switch globally and they can be pushing their own content to Netflix subscribers all around the world. And uh, Disney and all these other content producers, frankly, should start to realize, oh man, like these guys, that end up that their long-term play is to own this customer relationship and they'll be able to cut us out. We can create this differentiated content. But if people just think about Netflix to go to to like what am I going to watch today? If we're not uh, if we're not in the mix there, like we're gonna we're gonna be in a serious amount of trouble, and because they're producing their own content, they have so much more leverage over us in in any negotiation. Right. I mean, that, that, that's exactly it. So I mean, let's look at this. I think it's useful to think about this in the context of that value chain, to kind of reference a little bit ago, which is you had the situation where you had the cable companies basically had a, a monopoly or very limited competition in delivering this content to consumers. And the negotiation that happened was between the supplier, Disney in this case, and, and there's also you know Time Warner and, and, and NBC Universal and the, the scripts and the other ones like that, between them and the cable company about is basically it was how are they going to split the pie? We, we got this big pie from consumers, how are we going to split it up? And with differentiated content, Disney was able to consistently take a, a very big slice of pie. And the way they thought about though, and so that that's that's let's set that to the side over here. And you have this other thinking, which is we have this content. Every time we reuse it, we can make more money off it. So if Netflix is going to be another another place to use it, that's great. What they didn't appreciate is that they previously thought about these as different worlds. Mm. So the way we think about our international rights, for example, is totally separate from our negotiations with Comcast. Because the Comcast is about various regions of the U.S. It's not even national to the U.S., right? It's only in parts of the U.S. or Charter or or Time Warner Cable, which is separate from Time Warner, uh, so which is now part of Charter, but whatever. <laughs> but this idea being that they they were able to think about them in different parts and just have like the 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 back end content being you can put it wherever you want. What they didn't understand is those parts were going to start competing with each other. Netflix wasn't just a, another regional cable operator. Netflix was a direct competitor with Disney's best customers. And, and Disney's best customers being not end users, their best customers being the cable companies. And so, yes, they were negotiating about splitting up that pie, but in the end, it was a sort of like frenemy negotiation where they're mo- they're all on the same team. They're all benefiting from this particular system, and it's just a question of who's benefiting more. But mm-hmm. what Netflix did is it, it it was a competitor for their customers, not just a – so Netflix was both a customer and a competitor, not just for Disney directly, but for Disney's – best customers, and by giving Netflix that content, they were weakening their Mm. their much more powerful channel. And here's what's so interesting. You talk about being strong, limiting you. I bet there were people who would give Disney advice, maybe not in 2012, because this was already becoming more apparent, but maybe in 2011 or 2010 saying, oh, 
thumbs up, Disney. Way to give your mm. content to Netflix. Way to be thinking about the future and not be married to the old business model. And and without realizing that, yes, if you look at it narrowly, they're being very forward thinking by selling their company to Netflix. But if you back up and look in terms of mm-hmm. value change, their value chains, they're actually vandalizing themselves. Totally. I, I mean, if you could, if Disney could go back in time and redo that decision, as much as they might lose those licensing fees, you would never make that same decision right now because effectively it was accelerating Netflix's role as an aggregator because all of a sudden all this great Disney content was available on Netflix places where people might have had to have gone elsewhere or could have gone elsewhere and now they could get for whatever it was seven or ten bucks a month it's like oh i used to have to subscribe to cable now i can get there i can get it off um i can get it off netflix this is fantastic the 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 issue is you're accelerating the rise of this competitor who is then going to start creating shows that compete with you with the view of then having uh, power in a negotiation such that they can force down the price because they have such a grip on distribution. They have the consumer's eyeballs. I mean, the other the other broad thing about this, and, and this comes from living overseas, it, it, it's the the way in which that international distribution had unfolded always used to drive me nuts because you'd wait, you'd have to wait months for new movies to come out in Australia, for example, that had already been released in the US. And I was always like, why? And I'm sure there were reasons. I mean, there were reasons like they had to, uh, there was a local distribution arm that did marketing and that uh, put it in cinemas or put it in DVD shops. And it's like, but why not just release it at the same time? It makes no sense. And uh, the, that, that fundamental assumption, like you could see it as, as someone who'd grown up with the internet, but the existing structure couldn't accommodate it until something like Netflix came along and just said, this makes no sense. And if we control the whole thing, we can create a system that makes sense given the assumptions that exist today. There's kind of a meta point, though, that I also want to make here, which is getting into this, like, why strategy is important and why sort of, like, understanding value chains matters. Because, it, it, again, it could be so simplistic to say – Again, I, I can see I can see folks sitting around in 2011 saying, "Why isn't Disney putting its content on Netflix? Don't mm, they see mm. that that's the future?" Like, look at this—a classic old company being stuck to its business model when actually what they did do was embrace the future, but they embraced the future in a way that endangered themselves. Mm. And, and and it's why to have any sort of simplistic view of strategy, whether whatever that strategic framework might be, if you don't back up and understand the sort of mm. value chain, the context in which that strategic sort of paradigm is being applied, then you're going to actually you're, you're going to think you're thinking strategically. And you're going to make bad decisions in this particular case, quote unquote, embracing the future by embracing streaming was it was the worst thing that Disney and all these content providers could have done. Netflix is something that they have to deal with now and is unquestionably the driver of this deal, this $69 billion deal in terms of enterprise value, include debt and all that sort of stuff, a massive amount of money. How much more inexpensive and easier would it have been to deal with five, seven years ago if had you had the, the sort of appropriate framework to think about it? Just ask Blockbuster. I'm sure they have a point of view on that. <laughs> Your favorite. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's exactly right. Yeah, but the, even the the box thing though, like that that it's like textbook disruption, right? Mm. And it's like they should have embraced streaming. They should have embraced the future. Mm. Blah 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 blah. In this case, embracing the future was the wrong decision. That's my sort of meta point here. Mm. Is is you know yes, look at Blockbuster, but in this case, Blockbuster in some, many respects is an easier analysis. It's like they were stuck with their old model and they were going to stick with it. In this case, I'm saying Disney should have stuck with the old model. It's actually the opposite advice. That you would have given a blockbuster, which makes, which is sort of the, the broader point about if you don't get the big picture, then it's easy to make mistakes. Like just getting prescriptive, embrace the future, you know, build a separate division and do this. It, it's insufficient. I mean, I totally agree. It's this is this is one of these things where that rote advice around what to do. Uh, I, I mean, this kind of occurred to me one time when I was. I, I, read HBR relatively frequently, but I, more so in the past. And you'd pick up articles and they would give this broad rote advice and it was contradictory. And it's like, well, hang on, which of it, which of it is right? And it, using, using this critical thinking and trying to understand the assumptions and going through that process, you really have to figure it out for yourself. And it's only more so when you start to get into things like the internet where and and the shifts in distribution and how that's going to fundamentally alter so many different businesses that are all interconnected you have to do the hard thinking yourself if you outsource it to some simplistic like embrace the future type i mean yes who's going to disagree with embrace the future but like how do you embrace the future what is the right move like you have to do the hard thinking yourself and I think I mentioned this previously, but you, you you hinted at it with your reference to HBR. Like this was one of my huge frustrations with business school, where you know the the what strategy one hundred and one, and you look at the list of cases, and there's no internet companies on there. I'm like, why are there? Why aren't there any of these companies? Like, oh well, the the business principles are like are, are broad and can be uh, applied. Da, da 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 And the problem is is we. I mean, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating in this context. If you have like say if a business principle is like a math equation, you put zero into that equation. Just just the yes, you could theoretically think through it and figure it out, but the reality is the outcome is so fundamentally different from all previous outcomes that didn't have that zero in there mm. that it might as well be something completely new. And this is, I mean, hopefully it's better on business schools today. I don't know, but when I was there, it certainly was just a total failing in education that zero sort of like just the assumption that the world would operate as it was, and that was fine for a long time. But this is why the internet's so impactful. It's it is challenging and changing the very fundamentals of business and and if you don't grok that and just as disney did not grok it one of the most well-run companies in america then you get yourself in very big trouble now that we've finished shitting on our uh, old world competitors which in some respects hbr and the business schools are for our listeners we should probably <laughs> bring it back to disney sorry uh, it's always good to get that on my system every, every few months <laughs> of course <laughs> so, so you know, the news of Netflix, uh, ESPN is starting to lose subscribers. One of the things they did, it's kind of a, a technical detail, but they it used to be that ESPN had to be a 90% of all cable bundles, and but in exchange for getting an even higher rate, they reduced it to 80% because they were so confident that, oh, everyone has to have ESPN. They, they actually did overshoot in that case, and what happened was the cable companies do these sort of skinny bundles, and ESPN was dropped from them, the most expensive one, and suddenly it turned out that ESPN was losing subscribers, and not just losing subscribers, they were losing them faster than the cable industry cable tv industry as a whole was losing subscribers and and so this came up to a head on an earnings call in 2015 where 
CEO Bob Iger finally sort of admitted it, and Disney's you know stock took a huge drop. All media companies' stock took a huge drop. And it's been sort of this dominant conversation in the last few years, kind of overshadowing a lot of really impressive stuff that Disney has done otherwise. I mean, their acquisitions of Pixar and, and Lucasfilm mm. and, and Marvel, and the way they've sort of completely rethought their movie strategy, where Disney releases the fewest number of films of all the major studios, but they have the they have the most revenue by far, and it's sort of tentpole sort of like approach and and creating these universes and then how that filters to all the rest of the business. Like, really impressive stuff. But if you have a business that used to be 50% of your revenue, 65% of your profits, and that share keeps going down, you know, year over year, it kind of it, it has a tendency to overshadow all that other stuff for a very, you know, understandable reason. Given this context, when that core business is in secular decline, and obviously it will in part play, it determine, be determined by how this a topic that we are talking about plays out. But I have a feeling that uh, history is going to look back very kindly on Bob Iger because there are a number of folks in his position that would uh, shut their eyes, put their fingers over their nose and just hope for the best. And his ability, like the, the, those acquisitions that you're talking about, and you look at uh, like Pixar and Lucasfilm, you look at what typically happens in terms of acquisitions inside most big organizations and they end up more often than not as unmitigated disasters those are incredibly impressive and the way in which he has figured out what's going on and begun to shift the to, to turn the ship around and and like this deal with fox being part of it is is i think going to be looked back on incredibly like incredibly well yeah, I think there, I'd make a few points on that. One, there was an interesting thing on one of the investor calls this past week weekend where Bob Iger basically said one of the reasons – in so many words, one of the reasons why he, he's been very good at shepherding acquisitions is because he was acquired twice in that mm. he worked for ABC, which was acquired by Capital Cities, and the Capital Cities was acquired by Disney. And he's like, one thing that I really learned is the importance of taking care and preserving the culture of the companies you're acquiring, mm. and, and you're, you'll only be successful to the extent that they feel – you know, wholesome and successful into that point. And that's exactly how it has played out. Iger's track record for acquisitions is, is incredible. And and that's, mm. you know, this is by far the biggest that they've done, but you can see just by and large, like he's getting a ton of the benefit of the doubt and deservedly. So mm-hmm. like, it's a skill. It really, it really is a skill that that's point one. Point two is I actually wrote after that ESPN deal. And I, you know, I'm going to go on a little bit of a, uh, uh, self mm-hmm. pat myself on mm-hmm. the back here. Please. When, after that ESPN earnings call where they said it was losing subscribers, everyone was crapping on Disney, saying they're screwed, they're in trouble, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote a piece that was called Why Disney and ESPN Will Be Okay. And and my point there was at the end of the day, and this was the summer, this is 2015, this is the, the summer of aggregation theory for Shatekri. Like that, that was when I wrote all those articles kind of leading up to it, including probably the most important article leading up to it was about Netflix and how Netflix is actually way more powerful than everyone appreciated for this exact sort of reason. And the reason I wrote there is what is the only surefire antidote to aggregation? It's being able to connect to customers directly, being able to go around or through the aggregators as it were. And how can you do that? You have to be super highly differentiated. And of any company in the world, any media company in the world, take all of them, which is the most differentiated? Yeah, the one that we're talking about right now. And because of these moves that he made, it wasn't just Disney's core IP, which is incredible. ESPN had recently sewn up all these rights deals. Everyone still gives them crap for paying too much, and I still think it was the right thing to do because ESPN, at the end of the day, yes, they're facing challenges, but they still own 
all the rights that that really matter. And then you have they have Pixar, they have they have Marvel, which we've seen what they've done with Marvel's just been incredible. We have the the whole Star Wars, and you know, like they bought Star Wars for four billion dollars. It's it's just jaw dropping. They're gonna make all this money back just on the, the, the a few movies, and they haven't even started building out like all the you know the theme parks and all the sorts of, and all the universe. They're gonna make they're gonna make making Star Wars movies for the next fifty years, and. Yeah. and and at the end of the day, like that's what cuts through. I mean, I think about this in the context of my business, right? How do you avoid the, the Google and Facebook vortex? It's it, you go directly to consumers. Like whatever Google and Facebook does has zero impact on my business. Now, obviously, that's much easier to do when you're one person. To do it when you're a massive conglomerate is is so much more difficult. But I've always been more optimistic than most about Disney because that's the hardest part is still actually being differentiated, and they've always been that. Yeah, I mean to to double down on that the the previous two points. I part of the reason that Iger was able to get Lucasfilm for example for such a song was because he had this history of uh looking after acquisitions well, like uh, uh shepherding the culture and making sure that what what made these organizations special was continued and it would have been so easy for example to to take what was special about Pixar and and lose it inside the the Disney universe and but he didn't and I, George Lucas saw that and he's like well I believe in what I've been doing this is really important to me and I've seen the way that you're able to manage these organizations and then you start getting these compounding effects and now you're right like they have like you you think about the franchises that they've managed to pick up these are some of the things that people feel most passionately about whether it's the sport whether it's Star Wars whether it's Mickey Mouse like if you are if you are looking for an example of how to combat an aggregator the way this is all going to play out of coming at it from a position of extreme differentiation and trying to compete from that perspective uh, these guys are in the best position to do it and that's why this is going to be so interesting to watch so there's still a little bit more history though I want to go through which was mm. so what 9 months ago though I have to admit I was about ready to throw the towel in at Disney which is when YouTube watch not YouTube Red that's the sort of their original content but YouTube TV where they're going to have basically an over the top bundle where they're, mm. they're going to have traditional cable channels like ESPN and and Disney was there day one to sign up and I'm like like, okay, I get, like, in some respects, like, yes, they're building a cable bundle and ESPN should be everywhere. You're going to make money. Like, I, I can get it. But I'm like, at the same time, of all the companies you want to partner with, are you sure YouTube is the one you want to go with? Because what is YouTube doing? YouTube's building up the world's largest library of original content by a, by a, a million miles. Mm. And you can see in the long run, you're doing the same thing you did mm. before. And yes, it's a little different because Netflix is worse. They were selling shows that we branded mm -hmm. Netflix, whereas this was very much a, still a cable bundle. And, and so it was, it was a little, is a little less egregious than the Netflix still. But to me, I wasn't sure if the thinking broke through and I, and I wrote, I'm like, you know, I believed in Disney because I believe that they have differentiating content and I think they know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but you know what? I don't know if I don't know if companies can change. Maybe they're just to the point we're talking about. Maybe they're just too set in their ways. They, they, their their mindset is too locked into this particular view of the world. They can't grok what the internet really means. And you know what? I might be wrong about this. And and that's where the sort of the last six to nine months has been incredible because. I, I don't think I was wrong. You go back and, and read the earnings calls, and even you know, like a year ago, it, it wasn't clear that Disney really got it. But what they've done in the last six to nine months has been just a complete sea change in a way you rarely see a company 
utterly and completely changed course in the way they have over the last six to nine months. And it's, it's been something to behold. Yeah, normally it takes a um, normally it takes a crisis. Like you build up a a, uh, a a culture in an organization. This is what makes us successful. This is the way we make decisions. And it normally takes a, a fundamental breaking. Uh, not not just like oh, this looks scary. Our ESPN numbers are, are dropping. It normally takes. Uh, we have our backs against the wall and it looks like we're going to die before you're able to turn a ship this big and this successful round. And again, I would credit Iger's leadership in terms of being able to do this because it is a phenomenally hard job to get an organization this successful to think about things differently. So what's happened is over the last few months, we and this was our podcast previously in August, was Disney announced a streaming service. And and one, that was really good. Two, they, they canceled the deal with Netflix. It still has to run through like next year or something, but they're going to pull all their shows off it. And what was so interesting is this isn't just a, like, this is a big deal. Like you, they're changing their business model. They are foregoing revenue that mm. a lot of revenue they're getting from Netflix that is a part and parcel of the horizontal model for a model that is a vertical model. And in a vertical model, this is where you're connecting directly with customers, you're building the relationship with them, and you're using your content, not making it once and leveraging it in as many places as possible, but using it to differentiate your channel. So, not not cable channel, your your channel to customers. So in the 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 way it works economically is instead of getting a little bit from millions and millions and billions of customers you're trying to get a much higher average revenue per user from a smaller set of customers it's just a, it's a totally different model it's apple versus google and to do that sort of shift is very difficult and and what we talked about on that podcast was i'm st i still was a little unsure if disney was ready to go all the way because at the time like uh, we're going to do this disney over the top mm. service not sure if it's going to have marvel not sure mm. it's going to have star mm -hmm. wars and the the article i wrote is called disney's choice i'm like disney they can't do both like they have to go all in or not. And going all in means of course they put Star Wars and Marvel on this service because you're not gonna you have to have more content, not less. You're dealing in a world of streaming where on demand the library size is much more meaningful because you can choose any piece of content at any time. It's not like a linear TV network where you just need a lot a much smaller set of good content. And then also like not only should they put on Star Wars and Marvel, they should actually do deals with other studios to get their other content on there. That's the only way they can compete with Netflix in the long run. And wow, not only did they are did they do a deal, they went out and bought the, uh, in this massive deal 21st Century Fox. Yeah, it's crazy. The one thing I will say in terms of making this an easier sell inside of the organization is that they're still making a bunch of money off cable. And if you position this all about fighting Netflix, then you can kind of see it. Uh, you can kind of see it how it might, it might, how it might fly internally both ways. Like we're pulling our content off Netflix. It's going to help our friends in the cable industry. But because Netflix is now enemy number one, we also want to create something that looks and feels a lot like that and that where we go direct to consumers to position ourselves for the future. And I think the fact that the unique way in which they're bridging the history and the, the positioning as of Netflix as enemy number one kind of makes, from an economic sense, even though they're giving up revenue, it might make it an easier sell than if they were completely burning the, the boats of the past for this brave new world that they don't know whether it's going to work or not. It's really interesting because if you think about it in the, in the, in the terms of disruption, yes, this is a 
they're doing an appropriate response to disruption in that they are foregoing revenue that they get today from the current business model to mm. build this sort of new business. So thumbs up, Disney. What's interesting, though, and this is kind of still an open question about these over-the-top streaming servers that they're going to build, is at what point would they, if ever, pull the plug on that cable mm. revenue? Because mm. if, if they're putting content on the streaming service that's not on the cable service, then they are going to make more people unsubscribe from cable because they can yeah. get what they need from the Disney service. On the other hand, they have a streaming service in the UK called Disney Life that hasn't been very successful. And Iger was very honest about this on the call. He's like, it's not successful because the content's also on 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 Sky. He's like, and so there's no really compelling reason to sign up if you've already signed up with the other one. And so again, they still have the choice in front of them. They are rapidly progressing down the choice towards making direct to consumer their number one priority but they haven't reached sort of the ultimate choice as it were mm. but again at this point the fact they made so much progress is is encouraging enough but they're still not out of the woods in, in that regard yeah that's that's going to be yeah i mean this decision was hard and again credit to Iger for getting to this point but the point that you just described the point at which you have to start trading off the guaranteed past versus the unknown future and whether you cut off the guaranteed past in in the hope of creating this future and you have no idea whether it's going to work like that's the scary thing that's the absolutely terrifying from a business perspective. You have to give up something that you can take to Wall Street and deliver numbers on, and you have no idea whether this new thing is going to work. So this is – I think this gets into a broader sort of uh, rationale for the Fox deal. So the sort of big picture rationale up front is – Disney gets this huge amount of new content and, and, and production capability. I mean, it's not just about reuniting uh, the X-Men with the rest of the Marvel Universe. As much – I mean, I put it aside there, but it's true. If you don't think that's going to help Disney politically, then, like, mm. I'm sorry. It's just, that's just the way the world works. It, it's crazy the things that people care about and how that influences how they'll vote. And know, I'll, is- be, no, I'll be totally honest. I swear one of the first things I thought about when this still came down is – I hope in the Star Wars films they can put the the 20th Century Fox like sound back in the beginning of the films. Like they used to be, used to be like the oh, it's yeah. part of like Star Wars before the crawl comes in, and it's gone now. And, and it's totally stupid. But at the end of the day, like when we start talking about antitrust and whether these deal be approved, at mm. the end of the day, these are political decisions, and everything goes into po- politics. Is is humanity? Like everything goes mm. into it for for better or worse. Yeah, including seemingly non-rational decisions like you like your drum roll before you get to watch the uh, the scroll of like in a galaxy far, far away. It's totally it's totally irrational. Yet 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 it's totally irrational in a narrow definition of rationality. But if you back up far enough, like that's hey, we're dealing with humans here. <laughs> you can justify anything going down that path, but let's leave it at that. <laughs> So the first and foremost, the rationale of this deal is getting this content. I mean, because the other thing with building a streaming service is a streaming service is not just about first-run content. Like, And we've talked about this in the context of Netflix. The reason why Netflix invests in evergreen content, where they don't invest in sports, for example, or, or other sort of live shows, they, they experienced it once and it, it didn't work out. Why? Because the value of that content works to reduce your user acquisition costs over time. Not by making it cheaper per se, but because the value of what you're offering is continually increasing. So if you're signing up for Netflix today, you're getting this huge library of, of, of original content that 
if you signed up three years ago, you would not have gotten. And though three years ago they got new users because they found value, but they're moving down sort of the, the marginal customer. You know, the the further and further down that curve you go, the harder and harder it is to acquire a customer. And mm. usually you have to spend to get that customer. Netflix doesn't have to spend to get that customer. What they've done is increase the value proposition to that customer such mm. that more and more will sign up over time. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, this sort of sustainable customer acquisition costs component that is really the super scale companies it's a it's it is the sort of critical piece yeah and obviously it's keeping i mean it has the added benefit of keeping your current customers engaged and coming back because they want to see what you're coming up with next but then you come into something new and there's just this incredible library almost overwhelming library of content it's like this is fantastic how could i ever give this up Right, exactly. And this is something that Fox really helps with. I mean, they bring in just a huge amount of content. I mean, not mm. not just the Fox Channel stuff, but actually Fox Studios produces a huge number of content for other channels as well. I mean, it, they've always been sort of separated a bit, a bit previously. And and, and so you've, you're filling in that library in a really sort of meaningful way, such that if you sign up for a Disney service, then you get all this sort of stuff. What's interesting, though, is Disney's still a little up in the air on how these services will be distributed. So the Right now, the the current plan is they will have an ESPN service, which is purely additive to the ESPN channel. It's not they're not going to like reserve all those expensive rights. Those are still going on TV, and I think that's the right move. Like I I, I think sports I've long argued would be the last thing to kind of go away mm. from the jobs mm-hmm. to be done by the cable bundle, and I think that's the right move. I and mean, that's the biggest sort of disruption. We talk about that choice they're going to face. That's the biggest one of all, but I think it's the one that you can put furthest in the future in part because it's so differentiated Mm. like people are going to stick with that for a very long time i've argued that disney should just keep jacking up those affiliate fees and yes they're going to lose subscribers but in in effect the cable bundle should become like the sports bundle and disney Mm. should take a huge part of that and this deal helps them do that they also acquire a bunch of regional sports networks which you've asked me not to talk about because you have you have you have have no care or clue No, it's not really pertinent to this conversation, but um, I covered it in a daily update last week. But then there are also so then the sports channel, which is purely additive, not really. Well, before you move on from that, I think it's 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 clever for another reason, which is it is the vessel through which when they do decide to uh, turn, when they do reach that point of needing to switch off the cable for the future, if this is differentiated enough or the job to be done is so different from the other content they have, then there is an existing structure to which they can just put their foot to the floor and move all that content over there. So I think it's smart for that reason as well. But I'm with you. Like when you have a business that's being disrupted like this, the smart thing to do isn't to try to protect it. It's to milk that thing into the ground and use that as the basis for building building other things that will will help you survive into the future and thrive into the future and that's kind of it seems how they're thinking about the sports stuff it's it's a great way to put it and and i think your point about preparing the foundation is exactly right and they purchased a a company called bam tech which was actually built by major league baseball in this this really phenomenal technology for streaming and that's one of the things to their credit they have done uh over the last couple years is they first acquired a piece of it then they acquired the whole thing and they will have all the underpinnings in place to if they have to make that move they will be placed Mm. to make that move and and Mm. It, it it is very it, yeah, and I I I think how they're handling sports is exactly right. I have, I have no really objections to it, and it's right to keep sports I think separate from everything else, just because the costs are so large that 
you're really put you're really handicapping yourself to compete with Netflix effectively if you're trying to attach sports to it. Yes, that bundle worked, but that bundle the, the sports has always been a, such an outsized part. Like it accounts for something like forty to fifty percent of your cable bill is sports, and, and already, and that's only going to go up. I think going forward, and if you're competing with Netflix to to have that sort of anchor on you, even if yes, some people really want it. I think keeping it separate, it just doesn't make sense mm. kind of going forward. That that was a limitation of the physical sort of monopoly distribution angle. They had to all be together in the internet where it doesn't have to be together. I, I think it's right to keep it separate. Me too. The other one though is is this is where it's kind of much more interesting, which is the current announcement is that the Disney over-the-top service is going forward. It's going to have all the Disney brands. They talked about adding uh, 21st century content like from National Geography, which is obviously very you know family-friendly content and nature and all those sorts of things. But they've gotten a lot of sort of adult-focused content from Fox, things like all the shows on FX, for example. And a lot of the this, the content that Fox Studios puts out is, is much more focused on adults. And Fox, generally, their movie studios have been more adult-focused relative, relative to Disney. And the plan for now is to put that content onto to Hulu, and this is another interesting angle to this, Disney will now own 60% of Hulu with Comcast mm. owning another 30%. And who knows what's going to happen with that? Because is Comcast going to be happy with that? Are they going to, is Disney going to be happy sharing, you know, that sort of revenue stream going forward? And then they're going to keep the family stuff on Disney. And there's an mm-hmm. argument like bundle economics are that you should keep it all mm. together. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, there is such a kind of clear delineation between what you're getting for each and can they sort of, you know, differentiate effectively? Is that forward thinking or is it backwards thinking? It's backwards thinking. In, in my point of view, this is backwards thinking. Like, it, particularly given that television is typically purchased by households and different people want to watch different things. I Like, he, here's how I would frame it. If Hulu didn't exist, would Disney be creating a Hulu or some entity like that to separate out the programming? And I don't think it makes sense at all. I think in the same way it made like, like Disney was talking about whether they'd split off the 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 Lucasfilm stuff and the Marvel stuff into separate channels from the Disney stuff, and it's no, you, you like that's not how Netflix is thinking about the world. Like you create this content and it's valuable enough as a bundle to attract all kinds of different people and all kinds of different marginal customers. I think sports is different because there's a time aspect and a jobs to be done aspect that differentiates it. But this kind of thing, it's all entertainment. You should put it all in. Now, I understand they are constrained by the fact that Hulu exists. And if you started to kill it, it might start to uh, create antitrust concerns, for example. But the, the right thing to do, I believe, if all if everything else was if this if the slate was blank and you were creating it from scratch it wouldn't be to split this up like this and they are but they are contorting themselves to explain it and to try and create a solution given these entities already exist i agree well stated. Well stated. I'm I'm with you. Uh, I I think that's right. And your point about would they in a vacuum create one of these or the other is 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 very well put. I mean, there's the argument that the brand safety sort of thing, like Disney is always focused on it only has sort of wholesome content and et cetera, et cetera. And if this over the top service is labeled Disney, then and and they're pushing it to to families and things like that. Do they want to have much more sort of adult themed content in there? It's it's a valid concern. I'm not sure it's a controlling concern for the mm. exact reasons that you said. 
Yeah, I, it, it just didn't feel like the right thing to do. And I, I, there are other ways of getting around what you just described. Well, but that's the question, though. What if you have the app and you could buy just Disney? Like, maybe that is something that does matter to parents. Because I mean, remember, the other thing to think about this, and again, I, I do agree with you, but I think it's a little more it's a little more complicated. And you think about going direct to consumer, direct to consumer brand really, really matters. And the Disney brand, unlike a lot of conglomerates, like Disney is a brand in its own right, right? Usually a lot of conglomerates, it's, it's they have sub brands, but Disney, it's the company brand. And that brand really does mean something in terms of sort of family entertainment. And you are putting it at a little bit of risk if you, it suddenly means something broader than that. Uh, sure, but like I think, I think I would frame it slightly differently, which is that people will pursue that branded content wherever it might be, and if it is in a channel, whatever that might be called, whether it's Disney or perhaps something else, and I, I would err towards something else because you are creating a, a Netflix competitor. You're not creating what what Disney stands for, people will seek out Disney differentiated content wherever that might be. And if there's only one place to get it, you can bet your bottom dollar that people will find that thing and get it for their kids. And then it's just like, oh, you want to create an app that's just for your kids? Like that's a technical solution that can be navigated as opposed to trying to create a half dozen different apps and oh, do we need to have this subscription for this person and that subscription for that person? No, I, I just don't think it makes sense. Yeah, and to be clear, they talked about this on the call. Like they're gonna have, they all have the same backend. Like all three of these services, they'll have the same billing structure. Like all the backend services will be completely unified. It really is just sort of like three faces onto Disney's OTT service uh, that will offer up sports content in one case, family friendly content in another case, and sort of like pure more adult centric, not, not, not that kind of adult centric, uh, mm. more sort of like adult themed content on the other one. So it's not like they're building three different companies here, right? Mm. There is, there is a high degree of centralization that is going to take place. No, no, no. I'm just thinking about this from a consumer forward perspective. And I just, uh, asking, and like, which one, do, which one do the Lucasfilms end up under? Like, is that for kids or is that for the adults or is it on both? And if you get both, do you get a discount? But I'm, I'm paying for it twice. Like, there's all this other stuff. Netflix doesn't differentiate. You don't buy different tiers of Netflix based on the type of content you want to watch. And like, these guys are the gold standards. And, and this is before we even get into all the bundle economic stuff. I, yeah. I'm a big fan of rolling it together. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We are almost an hour in and we are going to go long. I'm just saying it right now. Like there's an aspect, like this deal is like pure catnip for me. I can tell you mm. that personally. Like it, mm. it, it, almost every aspect that I brought to Techery, not just the media aspect, not just the technology aspect, but also sort of like the, I, I've already gone on two like meta rants about like business school and like looking at <laughs> how you think about strategy going forward. Like, so uh, sorry, we're getting a double episode since we're, we're missing the next couple of weeks. So yeah. a, a, a Disney double as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I find it fascinating because it's the other side of how you build this from an aggregation, like the aggregator side, like the other side of the Netflix thing, which is to like come at it from differentiated content and try to assemble this thing almost like an aggregator mid-flight. It is definitely fascinating. So we've talked about Netflix a ton, both on this episode and in this podcast generally. But I think just to quickly reiterate, because again, I don't think you can understand this without fully understanding Netflix. And you can't understand the sort of antitrust implications which we've kind of been dancing and hinting at without also, I think, understanding Netflix's role in this. There are two aspects to, to the rise of Netflix that's so fascinating. And I think 
One of them is there has been their ability to ladder uh, based on a, a fundamental starting point with customer experience. Create a great customer experience, and then uh, and then take those customers and use them as a basis to move up. So going from DVDs all the way into uh, acquiring streaming rights services. So they went from a physical distributor of entertainment to a digital one, and then taking that and building a bigger business each time, and then moving into the production of their own content and and uh, almost uh, competing full on with traditional competitors, uh, content creator competitors, which then gives them negotiating power in terms of getting the, the rights for those shows because they have so many consumers and these competitors with perhaps now the exception of Disney have no choice but to come to the table because they have so many, they have so many customers there and that's where customers go when they think about entertainment. The other aspect that's so fascinating about what they've done is that they were able to orthogonally compete every step along the way. So you think about what they were doing against Blockbuster where it would drive people nuts paying these late fees and a limited selection, Netflix would mail you the DVDs and you could keep them as long as you wanted, and but you wouldn't get a new one until you mailed it back. And same thing with the streaming service. Typically, when you were watching cable, it would be there'd be channels, but you'd have to watch it at the time that the cable channel put it on. Because it was streaming, you could watch what you wanted when you wanted. And their ability to find a better way based on a, a, a check, like a, a, a re-evaluation of the fundamental assumptions have put them in this incredible position that they're in today. That That's such a great summary of how they got to where they were. But in kind of the final piece of that is, we, we've talked about a few times, is building the original content directly. Mm. And what's interesting is what people may not realize, there's actually been stages there as well. Originally, they're just buying shows, whereas now they're paying for production from the ground up. So they're they're ownership of rights is becoming much more total. Their risk is also going higher because they're not buying like like finished products. But mm. the point is that they are building like their own sort of garden, to use the term, walled garden of only stuff that they have. And the reason why this matters, most people think about it is, oh, what happens if Disney pulls their content? Well, Netflix has their own shows. That's one way to think about it. But the other way to think about it is goes back to that negotiation point that I talked about before. What was the alternative to Comcast if Disney jacked up the prices on their channels? Well, they could just not carry the channel, right? But that's a pretty crappy alternative. You know what I mean? Because you might lose customers. If customers say, oh, I can't get ESPN, I'm going to go get a DirecTV satellite. Well, they've already got a satellite now, and they've probably signed up for a two-year contract, and you've lost that customer and a huge amount of lifetime value mm. for – is it worth the $0.10 cents in, 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 that you're negotiating over? It's probably not worth it. So you, you have this concept, you know, speaking of business school, best alternative to negotiated agreement for the – even though they were monopolies, for the cable companies, their alternative wasn't very great. The difference, this is where the original content though matters for Netflix. Netflix isn't just a distributor. They're a vertical content company mm. where they are owning the production of shows all the way through to the distribution, to the customer management. They're owning the entire chain. And that means the best alternative to Netflix, if Disney wants to pull their content from their service, the alternative is to spend that money on building more Netflix original content. And that's such a powerful – it changes the dynamics of the negotiating relationship so dramatically that this is why Disney has to, has to make the shift because, yes, they could just keep selling content to Netflix forever, but over time, their negotiating position is going to be fundamentally mm. inverse of their negotiating position relative to the cable companies. 
there's there's one other compounding factor that gives Netflix even more of an edge and that might be causing Disney to consider this, which is because they are vertically integrated, they get these direct signals, data signals from customers around shows they watch, where they abandon, where they play, where they press pause, etc. And they can see consumer preferences and they can use that to inform how they create new shows. Whereas in this old world of where you pass one piece of the content down to distribution, like it's impossible for those signals to be passed with that same degree of accuracy back and forth. So Netflix, when it's creating shows, isn't relying on this old world intuition of uh, of of people sitting in a room saying, "Oh, I know we should create this story. People will love it." They can they have uh, they have data built up based on every one of the individual preferences of every one of their customers, and it gives them such an edge in the creation of new content that old world creators just don't have. It's exactly right. And this is why like we've been podcasting with this for ages. I've been writing about it for 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 years is Netflix is so much more powerful than I think a lot of people really appreciate. And people are appreciating it now. There was an article, I think, in 2016 that I I think I linked to like three times a daily update because I'm like, yeah, yes, like showing the the degree of power and fear that Netflix was inspiring in Hollywood. When originally Netflix showed up, it's like, oh yeah, you want to pay us a bunch of money for more content? Of course. This is like no one was buying streaming rights. We'll sell you streaming rights. Sounds great. <laughs> and, and you see this again and again, right? Where the initial business is like for you see this for disruptive companies. The first version, the first wave is great. It's like newspapers. Oh, yeah, we can throw newspapers online. Oh, mm. you get a little extra digital advertising to layer on top of our layer on top of our circulation and print advertising. And and what you're doing is you're creating the conditions for this mass these massive entities to come on and just totally intermediate you from from your customers and to take all the money. And that's that's exactly what happened there. And it's what's happening in Hollywood entertainment via Netflix, it's the same thing. It's not to the degree for lots of different reasons as like print and like Google, but it's the exact same dynamic. It's aggregation. Mm, right. So the reason why this is interesting and just kind of digress on Netflix was to get to the obvious sort of antitrust questions that are risen by this case. I mean, you have two huge storied production companies that are merging it's it's like the clearest possible example of a horizontal merger and horizontal mergers for the last 20 30 years 40 years of antitrust jurisprudence have been the biggest sort of focus in here in the US in particular and you look at like movies for example right like 40% of of movie profits or or something like that or, or movie revenue last year in the United States was from these two companies you see the, the cable channel issue where Disney has already demonstrated they will use their bundle of cable channels to extract more revenue from distributors well now they're layering out a bunch of Fox channels again not Fox business not FS1, the sports network, and not the Fox Broadcast Channel, but the other ones like FX Network, National Geographic, things like that. But you know that's going to make their position more powerful. And there is certainly a discussion to be had about that in the context of that industry, and it's a reasonable one. But it's 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 so there's just this weird trade off between looking at the world as it is and the world as it's going to be and as it's changing too. Yeah, I, I, I mean, Iger made a funny quip about horizontal versus vertical monopolies and how the world used to be uh, much more opposed to horizontal monopolies and much more in favor of vertical ones. And I think, I, I think much truth in jest, right? Like it's true because of the importance of distribution and how that's changed. So here, here's a question for you. We let's let's pretend though we didn't just have the last uh, hour and ten minutes of this <laughs> podcast. 
if the world was as it was, say, 15 years ago, and you saw this merger happening between these two companies, again, setting aside all the streaming stuff, everything we're pretending that doesn't exist, would you have an objection to this merger? It's a really good question, and my answer would be yes. You want to avoid a position where any one company gets in, uh, uh, generates too much market power, but gets inside, it gets to too much of a dominant position. Uh, for all the reasons we talked about during our net neutrality conversation, when that starts to happen, uh, you are market forces cease to properly function. And that's kind of the direction they're heading. Like you look at, you think about Disney and you think about a whole bunch of these Fox assets, you are starting to create a company that is a behemoth in terms of its ability to affect cable, movies, all these different, all these different areas that are, uh, that are uh, of entertainment. And well, this is what this is what makes it so interesting, right? Because it's obviously not in a vacuum. If you would if you were to go back mm. in the '90s and say, "Yes, Microsoft, you know, it's too dominant in the market." Well, what happened? Did Microsoft become any less dominant in PCs? Absolutely not. The market changed, right? Mm. And, and and this is what makes these questions so challenging. You like, I had to tell you, I had to make you ignore the entire context of our conversation to answer that question because it's obviously. A, a silly question and answer because the market is so obviously changing. And and it's going to be so interesting to see how this plays out sort of politically and, and, and there's mm. going to be hearings and stuff about this because if you look at this deal in isolation, it does seem pretty problematic. Like there, there's – to your point, they're going to have massive power over – cable operators, like even more than Disney does now. They're going to have even more power over theater owners, and Disney, is, as we know with Star Wars, is not <laughs> afraid to exercise that. They're going to have even more power in terms of Hollywood over the various people that go into making movies and TV and all that sort of stuff. Like They're accruing a lot of power, and that's a bad, bad thing. But this is where the whole aggregation discussion is so fascinating because what's the point of the aggregation description? It's that if you own the user and you can build this flywheel, the power becomes so overwhelming that even in the case of a company like Disney, they are worried and rightly so about getting the short end of the stick when it comes to negotiating with Netflix in the long run because it's the best alternative in this negotiation with Netflix, Netflix's position is so much stronger. And in that case, that really changes how you think about this in the frame in which you put the sort of antitrust question and, and market power. As I read the last of your uh, article on this, you, you kind of you, you kind of played the like I'm not entirely sure what the right approach to how to regulate this is, and it's it's funny because as I read it, I very much had a strong reaction to that, and it's probably been informed most by watching what's happened with the social networks and how. When you end up in a position where you have one dominant player, that's that's it's just leads to poor outcomes for everybody. And uh, whereas traditionally I would have said prevent this from happening, it's resulting in a uh, centralization of of power even more so. I think the approach in this new world where distribution is is uh, the, the nature of distribution is being changed by the internet is that rather than prevent the centralization of power, what you want to do is try and create as much competition as possible of these big players. Like the internet is trending towards uh, these big players being created uh, uh, for all the reasons you describe in aggregation theory, and you want to have 
you you like it two big players is better than one big player and right now we're on a path to entertainment becoming much more like one big player like i would say with social media with the way that facebook's rolled up instagram and is absolutely crushing snapchat and you want to like having a situation where maybe uh, instagram hadn't been acquired by facebook or maybe something had happened such that snapchat was was a real competitor to facebook that is a better situation even if it means there's some centralization of power that in in a previous world you probably wouldn't have pre- preferred yeah, it's it's a really hard question because you basically just gave a a I'm going to choose this option that I think is really bad because it's it's not it's it, it's not as bad. I'm more worried mm. about the rest on the other side, which uh, I can relate to that. I can relate to that approach to to a question, uh, <laughs> to, to say the least. But it's kind of the issue here because you can take a there's three ways to look at this from an antitrust perspective. Number one is when we talked about like it's a horizontal merger. Is that a bad thing? Number two is the the entire point of doing this, if you understand Disney's strategy, is to do vertical disc- foreclosure, which is where they are going to cut off access to their content so they can prop up their service, right? And, and it's like, well, that sounds pretty bad. And, mm. and it's like, well, but at the end of the day, that's what Netflix is doing. Now, Netflix mm-hmm. came by it honestly, right? They didn't buy their way into it, at least from a conglomeration sort of perspective. They, they built up. The base through the way, right, exactly through the, through the ways that we talked about, but that doesn't that leads to part three. That doesn't change the f- fact that mm. as we've been discussing for years now, Netflix is on this path to be totally dominant. And you look at what's happening now: Netflix is raising prices and increasing subscribers. Like that's the surest sign of market mm. power you can get. And, and if you Facebook play this, Facebook added tree, right? Exactly. Facebook was was the canonicals at this over the last few years. Something I've been tracking over the last whatever. I'll get to it. Um, mm. th- th- that that's exactly right. And so if you play this out over the long run, people keep. I still have subscribers every time we're out Netflix saying you're way overstating it. They're just another. They could be knocked off easily. But no, at some point you have to look at where they were to where they are. Like if you follow this out, Netflix's power in the market, and again, is significant. And people almost don't want to hear that because. Netflix is so beloved, but that that's what we predict with aggregation theory, right? People are on these services because they love them and they like them. They provide a great user experience and they build these virtuous cycles. That doesn't change the fact they're really dominant. And that's a that's a really big problem. And what do we do about that? And that's like maybe the best outcome is that there's Netflix and Disney as opposed to there's Netflix and a bunch of studios, including Disney, that are reduced to – giving shows on Netflix on their term. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's exactly what my mind cast to in, in this situation. Like, you can start to see this play out in industry among industry, and it's going to be naturally the case that the, the, the forces we're describing lend themselves to one player coming out uh, in a very dominant perspective. And like, this is a this is one of the areas where a, a, a regulatory approach that might be intelligent is to do what you need to do to ensure that it doesn't just end up that you have one dominant player you want to support two or three because then you have competition in the market and that will invariably be a good thing but at the end of the day you're you're like you really are enabling and allowing a a strong horizontal merger that has the stated ambition of a vertical disclosure right it's actually both it is a horizontal merger and they're laying the groundwork to be a sort of like vertical you know a vertical uh, uh the way in the groundwork to to be like a, a a vertical merger, even though it's not a vertical merger yet. Like that's that's where they're going, and 
it, it's fascinating because you can really argue three completely different positions about this from a regulatory perspective, and and, and that's and we haven't gotten to the politics of it, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, look in general, I I think there should be more peering out into the future from a regulatory perspective. Like this is, I mean, you you go back and you look at Instagram and WhatsApp, like that could have been foreseeable. It was a, it, I mean, from a business perspective, a fantastic acquisition from a uh, outcome in advertising and outcome in social media. I, I don't think that, I don't think it should have been allowed, but the only way you could stop it is from peering out. But in the same way, like you, you need to take account of market forces and peer out and you want to have an environment in which there's competition. And uh, it's naturally going to accrue into these single players. And if you can do something that in, even if it means like the, the, the old thing, the equivalent of broadcast suffers more in the short run as a result, I think you do it. You look out into the future and you do what creates the most competition. There's going to be this question is going to come up again and again. And, and this is where the, the sort of political interference angle is really, it, it's not just problematic from like a sort of democratic perspective, but from a business perspective, like these questions aren't going to be argued the way they need to. Mm. Like when it comes to the question, is the Trump administration interfering in the AT&T Time Warner acquisition, which is a different acquisition because in this case, it is the, the issue is the negotiation with the cable companies. But where do you go if you don't have a cable? Line. You go to DirecTV. In that case, they're kind of like double dipping, right? They own both mm. sides of the negotiation. And that's a different issue than, than what's the case here. But we don't know. That's the stated reason for the Department of Justice to to file suit in that lawsuit. Or is it because President Trump is like CNN? And in this case, is this deal going to go through because it is different than that deal? And there really is a rational reason to oppose the AT&T Time Warner deal and to support this deal. There's a logically coherent position. It's actually not even that difficult. It's pretty straightforward. But maybe it's just approved because uh, Rupert Murdoch is dines mm. at the White House. And it's frustrating, not just, again, not just from, we're, we're not going to get into the, the politics and government issues of it. It's frustrating from a business perspective because we're not going to actually work through these questions in a meaningful mm. way when this cloud is kind of hanging over it. And they're really important questions to work out. We're going to see these kind of mergers again and again where the trade-off is old world merger that in the old world would be clearly problematic but is done to counteract a giant that's coming in and aggregating and rolling up users. And what's the trade-off we want to make there? Do we want to say no we have enough big players as it is. We don't need more, which is a totally justifiable, reasonable position. Mm. Or do you want to say, you know what? If we play this out over 10, 15 years, this new entry is gonna, entrance is going to be so powerful that we will have regretted not giving at least one competitor when we had the chance, which is also a very important and, and logical sort of response. Do you, do you know what the irony of this is? Although that um, – although – it might not be properly thought through and it's regret i regret that because this is likely to happen time and time again and the circumstances might not be so favorable as to land as a good decision but the irony of it is that the way that the political who, who favors who politically and doesn't favor who politically i could actually see an outcome where the AT&T uh, Time Warner thing is knocked back on the grounds of uh, President Trump doesn't like CNN, but the Disney Fox thing is allowed through because the president likes Rupert Murdoch. And from an outcome in entertainment perspective, I actually think 
that sounds pretty reasonable. Uh, from a thinking it through and making sure we get it right next time, uh, don't feel so good about yeah, it. Not, 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 not helpful at all. And <laughs> as a meta point, this issue of looking at mergers and looking at antitrust you know, yes, AT&T is objecting, oh, there hasn't been a vertical objection in, in so many years. And, and Iger kind of saying, oh, I, you know, everyone's usually concerned about horizontal, except for he's kind of hinting at the AT&T one. I think that's an appropriate shift. There's an aspect mm. where, yes, horizontal mergers were and horizontal companies and monopolies were much more problematic in this world of of where distribution was a physical sort of constraint and you own that sort of physical distribution channel then you really did have to worry about someone getting so much power on one side of that they could they could kind of overwhelm it or 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 own yeah sorry um in this world of like where distribution was a physical sort of thing horizontal someone doing a horizontal merger on the other side of that and gaining power over that channel it was a very reasonable and much more worrisome issue whereas a vertical integration was less of an issue because there was a there was a sort of natural constraint on what could be done like right? at the end of the day you know you 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 can't own every distribution channel in the world right There's, it's just not physically possible but this is this is how the internet's different yeah you actually I mean, can own the entire world right exactly. and in this case i'm so much more worried about the platforms that actually can own the entire world being able to back into supply and build these vertical powerhouses that's such a greater concern in the long run than some suppliers sort of banding together i mean you want to take an extreme example look at the music industry the music industry is an example of how supplier sort of oligopoly power can overcome an, a quote, an aggregator, right? Spotify and Apple Music, not nearly as profitable as Netflix or much less Google or Facebook because the music industry is basically an oligopoly that is negotiating to preserve their position. And they haven't been really modularized. What's so interesting, though, is even there – Spotify is demonstrating market power by virtue of its customer base. Like exclusives have pretty much gone away. Why? Because Spotify was not featuring them and killing them in the charts. And, and that shows if you want to, it's almost the perfect articulation of Spotify's weakness yet still having strength despite their weak position shows how powerful owning the customer relationship really is. And you put it in any other industry where you don't have that oligopolic power and you can see why this is a much greater concern in the next 50 years than it perhaps was in the previous 50 years. Yeah, I mean, music is Was that, was is that the too next... convoluted or is that okay? I, um, no, I think it was okay. Okay. I, I, um, I think music is an excellent example uh, of, of how this is going to play out. Like you see all these other folks trying to come in and compete on the music industry and one by one they're dropping off and it's only two that seem to be remaining and – I'd say that the reason that, that Apple's still in the game is because they have this belief that they need to be in there because historically they've been in there and they've, in terms of the resources that they've invested for the return that they're getting, I, I don't know, it's question, I, I feel like it's kind of questionable. But imagine Apple didn't exist and it was just Spotify, the concessions that they would be able to extract from those, yeah, they're oligopolies, but they would be powerless in the face of, a, of an organization in that position. Right. And again, <laughs> we're not defending music companies. Like they, I think they've really retarded the industry generally mm. by their sort of approach to, you know, be 
being so focused on the original recording and not thinking about all the reuses, all sort of things. I'm totally there with you. But the point of the analogy is to really emphasize how powerful it is when you can be one service that serves the entire world. And in the long run, you, you say, oh, if we only go back to 2011 and when Facebook acquired Instagram and, and do it again. But that requires understanding the power of a service that only had like a million users. Like you have, you have to be able to see how this is going to play out. And we, we to your point, we see in the social networks and we see in search what the natural mm. outcome is one and what happens when there's only one. Not, not great things. It's not great, Bob. But two is better. Like two is better. Yeah, and I mean, still not ideal and like sacrificing, making those sacrifices in these existing, uh, in the existing cable industry, also not ideal, but like you look at where it's going and two is definitely better. This is, I mean, it's interesting. I, I didn't do, um, I, I'm not going to do the where's tech is uh, in in 2017 i might do it at the beginning of next year in part because um in part because this deal came down <laughs> i would have done it last week distracted but i think this deal really is really an indicator of where we're at mm. in, in lots of ways not just the changes that are undergoing in in media and and the internet and the power of of being an aggregator and how the internet lets you serve the whole world, but also the sort of regulatory issues that have been such a dominant theme for us, you know, this year in particular. And thinking through the short term versus the medium term mm. versus the long term, mm. and and you talk about Netflix being an organic company. To their credit, it's amazing what they've built, and you can look out in the future and see them just just continuing to power forward. But once they're there, what are you going to do about it, right? Like these problems, you have to think about them before they're really problems. And yeah, Netflix is great right now, but and lots of these companies are great right now. And they all have great intentions. They all want to change the world and be positive as we talked about last week. But at the end of the day, like power is power and centralization is centralization and only having one is is a challenge. And And it's not an end all be all. Like obviously I've argued other positions because of other factors that I think also enter the conversation, but the, the, to take a simplistic one size fits all view is almost impossible. It's always been impossible. It's more impossible now than it's ever been before. Right. Well, I mean, just, I, I, I don't know. I, you think about the problems that we're having in the realm of social media as a result of this concentration and if we don't get this right they are going to pop up all over all over society inside of every economy and i i don't think that's a good outcome and doing whatever we can to be forward thinking and preventing that i think is a it's it's something that we should be fighting for yeah but i mean you, what you're fighting for is for one massive company uh, that is not that has shown it's willing to throw its weight around to acquire another massive company. Uh, yes, but that's exactly. Uh, I mean, you you look at what's happening with Facebook now and the uh, the the options we have in terms of dealing with that massive concentration in just one. Uh, in just one organization and you want a competitor that is you want the market to be fighting and uh, you want a competitor who is willing to throw its weight around and who will invariably throw its weight around against an aggregator like Netflix and that benefits us all because if we don't have something like that the options around how we're going to deal with it they, they start to get 
really poor, to be honest. I like that you're so strong in this position, I have to say. Because I bet when this podcast started, a fair number of folks would have expected you to be opposed mm. to this for from an antitrust perspective. I mean, just you're generally a little more friendly, I think, mm. to regulation you know, than I am by and large. But the fact you're like, no way. like I, I, They absolutely should let this go through. I think really lands – how different you might look at this compared to the time frame in which you're in which you're viewing it. And you know, is the future guaranteed? Of course it's not guaranteed. Anything could happen. But your point that this is going to be a conversation that's going to need to be had in industry after industry as these centralized players with their zero distribution costs and ability to serve everyone on the planet at once, like what does that actually mean in practice? It's something that is starting to become more and more visible. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, and and the regulatory options once you get to that point are so limited. And instead, like you want to have as light a touch as possible to enable the market to work. And this is how it will work. Like you create a, you enable the creation of competitors, and that is a much better regulatory approach than trying to come along and deal with it afterwards when you just have a single behemoth. It's really tough at that point. Yeah, and, and it, it, you know, it's a trade-off. And, you know, I think it's easy to – I respect and understand anyone that would mm. argue the sort of opposite position here because, it, like, this is – it's easy to articulate the case. I, I, I articulated two of them in this. You know, the short-term horizontal and the medium-term, they're, they're going to vertically foreclose this content. But if you look at the long, longer term, it really pushes in the opposite direction. And, and yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how I – and mean, maybe it won't matter because uh, – your buddy Rupert Murdoch eats dinner at the White House. So. <laughs> yeah, my my good friend, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that we finally had an occasion to actually talk about Rupert Murdoch, and we didn't really when he's he's come up he's come up other times in in, in tangentially yes. in tangentially yes. topics. Oh wow, I'm looking at the time. We've definitely knocked it out of the park this this week in terms of length, and so as promised, uh, another apology. Though hopefully people are listening to us because they enjoy it and they're happy it's gone long, as opposed to like, God, won't these guys ever shut up? Well, they they have they have like two weeks to, That's true. to work their way through it. So we will be back in January, and I hope you have a you and our listeners have a Merry Christmas. Our thanks to WordPress.com for sponsoring Exponent. Again, the that link is WordPress.com slash Exponent to get a fifteen percent discount. And uh, Merry Christmas, James. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, Ben, and Happy Holidays to everyone listening. And as always, thank you for supporting us and following along on this journey. Absolutely, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, and I will talk to you in twenty eighteen. Sounds good. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. See you, mate.